All right, we are back. Let's talk about some health stuff. Article by Anna Tong and SACB.com. Talking about third-hand smoke. Article notes that the scent of cigarette smoke is stubborn, clinging to clothes, walls, and hair. Now scientists are looking at uh, the possible health threats of the residue left behind after tobacco smoke clears. Referring to a study published uh, last week in Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, scientists showed how tobacco smoke lingering on surfaces chemically reacts with air, releasing potentially harmful substances. Said the study's author, many people think that after the smoke is gone, things are clean. That's probably not the case. Quoted Kent Pinkerton, an inhalation toxicologist at UC Davis Medical School, who noted that cigarette smoke has 4,000 components with toxic particles that end up on surfaces that can release them through simple touch. The American Lung Association said that at least one representative said he would like to see smoking banned in all apartment buildings, which could have third-hand smoke implications. And article in the New York Times talks about how the FDA is preparing to step up its regulation of medical radiation. The focus is on the ever-popular CT scan, which delivers the radiation equivalent of 400 chest X-rays. This comes in the wake of the news that apparently last year, Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, uh, for one reason or another, patients there received eight times as much radiation as intended during CT scans. This affected apparently more than 300 patients in four hospitals. It was noted that since, uh, since I went to medical school, circa 1980, the average lifetime dose of diagnostic radiation, that excludes therapeutic radiation, has increased sevenfold, prompting widespread concerns that certain procedures are overused and they're needlessly exposing patients to an increased risk of cancer. Children and women are particularly vulnerable. Apparently an overdose can ensue if uh, the machines are not programmed correctly or if basic safety procedures are not followed. I would uh, agree this is an area that probably needs some tightening up on. And the Sacramento Bee this week repeated an article from the Washington Post by Rob Stein about a subject we had talked about a few weeks ago. The controversy over the revision of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or DSM. This is the first complete revision of the DSM since 1994. There's quite a few <laughs> curious proposals being made to the American Psychiatric Association for some new diagnoses. For example, children who throw too many tantrums could be diagnosed with temper dysregulation disorder with dysphoria. If you're a teenager and you're particularly eccentric, you might be a candidate for the treatment for psychosis risk syndrome. And men who are just too interested in sex risk being labeled as suffering from hypersexual disorder. As reported in the article, the proposed changes have been the subject of sometimes bitter debate over whether the process was based on solid scientific evidence and was adequately shielded from influence by the pharmaceutical industry and whether some critics were driven by financial interests in maintaining the old diagnostic criteria. Supporters argued that revisions would make diagnosis more accurate and sometimes reduce the number of psychiatric labels. For instance, autistic disorder and Asperger's syndrome would be replaced with a new single category called autism spectrum disorders. Critics fear these new diagnoses could unnecessarily stigmatize many people and lead to the unnecessary use of psychiatric medications. 
said Jerome Wakefield, professor of social work and psychiatry at New York University, by massively pathologizing people under these categories, you tend to put them on an automatic path toward medication, even if they are experiencing normal distress. Other people have expressed concern over uh, new diagnoses such as temper dysregulation disorder with dysphoria, or TDD. Supporters say it's intended to counter a huge increase in the number of children being treated for bipolar disorder by creating a more specific diagnosis. Critics argue it would only compound the problem of overtreatment. Said Christopher Lane, author of Shyness, How Normal Behavior Became a Sickness, they're close to treating children like guinea pigs. Article closed by noting that in addition to classifying the symptoms of grief that many people experience after the death of a loved one as depression, the proposals include adding binge eating and gambling addiction as bona fide psychiatric conditions. They also raise the possibility of making internet addiction a future diagnosis. We will continue to follow this story. Speaking of psychiatry, we want to quote from the cover story of Newsweek from February 8th, titled Antidepressants Don't Work, the Debate Over the Nation's Most Popular Pills by Sharon Begley. We've noted that uh, Newsweek's become this, uh, this uh, essay magazine, but I've got to say, Sharon Begley is one of the best. Excellent science writer. Need to excerpt this article a bit. Sharon Begley notes that uh, psychology researchers back in... Uh, as early as the 1950s, noted that people on antidepressants improved. This improvement, demonstrated in scores of clinical trials, is the basis for the ubiquitous claim that antidepressants work. However, a 1998 study by Irving Kirsch at the University of Connecticut showed that when you compared the improvements of people on antidepressants with those taking dummy pills, the difference was minuscule. Patients on placebo improved about 75% as much as those on the actual drugs, which you can put another way and say that three-quarters of the benefit from antidepressants seems to be the placebo effect. How did America's psychiatrists and primary doctors respond to this news? Well, by doubling the number of Americans on antidepressants from 1996 to 2005 from 13.3 million to 27 million. Yes, that's right, folks. It appears that every 10th American is on antidepressants. Begley notes that uh, part of the problem with uh, researcher uh, Kirsch is that he's been somewhat retiring in nature. In fact, he didn't win too many friends when he titled his paper, Listening to Prozac, But Hearing Placebo. And he's published a new book titled, The Emperor's New Drugs, Exploding the Antidepressant Myth. But even defenders of antidepressants agree the drugs have relatively small effects. But what I find curious about this article is that apparently uh, any researcher that wants to even get associated with Dr. Kirsch faces some problems. Drug companies fund most of this research and they're reluctant to have anything to do with Irving Kirsch and his skepticism. One collaboration at a medical school ended in 2002 when the, the collaborator scientist was warned not to submit a grant proposal with Kirsch if he ever wanted to be funded again. Four years later, another scientist wrote a paper questioning the effectiveness of antidepressants and cited Kirsch's work. When it was published in a prestigious journal, instead of bringing accolades, the department chair dressed him down and warned him not to become too involved with Kirsch. And we noted that in JAMA last month, uh, an analysis of six large experiments showed that uh, antidepressants are more effective than placebo in patients suffering only the most severe depression.
These would be the 13% of people most depressed to have the diagnosis of depression. Note of the article, like every scientist who stepped into the treacherous waters of antidepressant research, scientists at the University of Pennsylvania, like others, are keenly aware of the disconnect between evidence and public impression. I remember in medical school being told uh, about this theory that the reason the antidepressants work is that, uh, well, they raise your serotonin levels and people get better. Therefore, people suffer from a deficiency of serotonin in uh, their neural synapses and the drug corrects that and therefore they get better. I always thought there was a slight problem with this theory, which Sharon Bailey notes in the article. Yeah, the problem is that the direct evidence for this doesn't exist. For example, lowering your serotonin level doesn't change your mood. In fact, there's a new antidepressant out uh, in Europe right now that seems to work, and its mechanism involves lowering brain levels of serotonin. By the way, we would like to remind you, as Dr. Kirsch does in his new book, that if you are on antidepressants, you cannot suddenly stop taking them. That, that can cause serious withdrawal symptoms, including twitches, tremors, blurred vision, and nausea, as well as anxiety and depression. Article notes that in the U.S., most patients with depression are treated by primary care doctors, not psychiatrists. And that since some patients seem to get better on the medications, they're afraid to tell people that, well, we're not sure it's because of the pills you're taking. Said the authors of the JAMA article last month, it may be time for scientists to abandon the don't ask, don't tell policy of not digging too deeply into the reasons for the effectiveness of antidepressants adding maybe it's time to pull back the curtain and see the wizard for what he is. I want to note in closing that antidepressants can be of great value for some people in some instances. But it's been my experience as a medical doctor that people get stuck on these medicines and they stay on them forever, which I think is bad medicine no matter how much money it makes for America's pharmaceutical companies. If only the 13% of people with a diagnosis of depression are going to benefit from using antidepressants, then not shouldn't be 30 million Americans on the drugs. It should be more like 4 million. Anyway, we may want to get uh, uh, Dr. Kirsch on this program or certainly take a look at his book, The Emperor's New Drugs, Exploding the Antidepressant Myth. Because uh, in case we haven't made it clear to this point, we kind of think he's on to something. Joining us now on the program is Nick Bruner from Capital Public Radio. You no doubt have heard his voice doing various announcing little bits and other things and may have heard his program, which is, well, I'll let him tell you about it. Nick, welcome to Radio Parallax. Well, hello, Radio Parallax. Thank you. <laughs> How does this work? That, uh, that I know with a lot of technology with radio stations, they can have streaming and they can just tack you on and do a web-only thing. And how did, how, did you, how did you get hooked into that? Well, that's pretty much, that's pretty much it. Uh, I kind of uh, took this idea for underground rock and hip-hop and dance music to our program director uh, just over about a year and a half ago, and I said, hey, you know, there are radio stations on the NPR side that are doing just this kind of material and are getting away with it all year round. Uh, what do you think, you know, if I gave you a couple of samples of what I'd like to do, and we just we chatted it out, and it became Capital Public Radio's stab at... Uh, self-sufficient online-only show. So we're into our first year, just celebrated our one-year anniversary, and yeah, there we are. So how often do you change the content? Is it more or less put on and left go for the week, or how do you do it? Yeah, well, we post every show uh, starting at midnight on Thursday. So the second it turns Thursday, a new show is available. And then it's 
uh, archived at our website forever until the internet explodes. <laughs> so, but it goes till Thursday to Thursday. Thursday to Thursday, yeah. And how do you string it together? How do you put the content together? Well, most of the music that I pick up, uh, I was the music director of our college radio station back in Illinois, and that's where I learned, you know, how to get, you know, where to get this kind of music, who to talk to, who to report to, that sort of thing. KDVS does uh, the same service that we do. They report their playlists to um, CMJ, College Music Journal. So we cobbled together a bunch of music sent to us by over about 30 different record reps and radio or uh, record labels. And then we just audition it, audition it, audition it, pick about an hour's worth of music unless it's a special occasion. And that's that. It's difficult to string things together sometimes. Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> the way we put things together is right now kind of whatever strikes us as new and different and interesting artists that have a unique voice, including bands that have maybe been around for 20, 25 years, like your Yola Tengos, your Flaming Lips. But you don't hear them very often on traditional commercial rock stations. So artists that are critically acclaimed and they get a lot of great press, but you don't really hear them anywhere outside of your wacky festivals or unless you seek them out on the web. That's kind of what we're after. That's what we put together and what we try to put out on a weekly basis. Well, it's kind of a new wrinkle. I mean, you think of an, an NPR affiliate like Capital Public Radio is, you know, all the content that, that's there. But here, this is just, you really kind of taking a whole new direction. Kind of. Uh, my big pitch point to Capital Public Radio when starting out was, uh, hey, listen, you know, we have a great service. We're really serving the people who are already current listeners really well. What if we throw out a line and try to hook people when they're young, your 20-somethings, your early 30-somethings, people who may not know what public radio is necessarily. And by the time they graduate, by the time they settle down in the area, they have a job, they're established, they come back and they remember, oh, public radio was where I heard this you know, great song that I found on the internet and then I got hooked. And hopefully that'll get them in tune with what public radio is all about. And then, you know, that's our future audience. So that might sound grandiose, but that's kind of what I'm trying to do now. Well, I mean, it's it's a it's a subject near and dear to the hearts of uh, of, of of like KDVS or mm-hmm. when we broadcast on KZFR community stations that that are looking for something that's a little you know off the beaten track, I guess you'd say. Yeah, I uh, I, I love community radio. Uh, when I was a kid, I didn't have any of that. I had top forty and Christian radio and country, and none of that really interested me on classic rock. So when I found NPR, I just glommed onto that immediately when I was in college. Now, we didn't have the benefit of really cool little uh, community-run stations where I grew up or where I went to school at. So really, KDVS and stations around the area, like in Grass Valley, there that was the first time just a couple of years ago my exposure of real, you know, grassroots community radio. So I've just been attracted to NPR because that's all I've known. Yeah. And I think it does it well, but... Uh, well, it certainly occurs to me as we're talking that people that like what, say, KDVS does with a lot of the eclectic selections are certainly going to want to find their way to do, listen to what you're doing, and vice versa. Some people like what you're doing may want to, you know, listen to us too. Yeah, cross-promotion would be a a fine thing. I got, uh, really early on, I got an email from, a, I believe, a KDVS listener claiming that uh, 
I wasn't being genuine because I, <laughs> I said, this is the only place where you're going to hear this band or this band or that band. And uh-huh. she, spe- she cited specifically this one particular band that she heard on KDVS. And I'm like, well, that's, that's, that's fine. I like to point out very, very strongly that my one little piddly hour on the internet every week <laughs> is not trying to be as eclectic as what KDVS does all day, every day. Either. Well, well so. sure. But, you know, I know there, there's a certain point of pride I know with many of my uh, DJs here in, on this station and, and KCFR that you know, they, they've kind of got staked out a position on the, um, how can I put this? Yeah, like we've got the most esoteric content, uh, you know, available. Sure. It's a one-upmanship, I guess, somewhere out there. <laughs> I'm puffing my chest out as we do this interview. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, th- this is a good thing. But as I mentioned in the intro, people do hear your voice. You have announcing duties down there. Mm-hmm. Uh, my original uh, position at Capital Public Radio, the one that I still hold, is very behind the scenes. Uh, it's part of the operations department. A lot of you know technical mumbo jumbo involving computers and making sure we're recording the right streams and making sure that our automation system. I don't know if that's too technical. Uh, making sure that our computers are pointed at the right NPR content. That's kind of what, in a nutshell, I do outside of off-air. And what happens if that screws up? Well, then we go off the air for a couple seconds oh. until we can point it back the right direction or uh, until NPR fixes it themselves. So sometimes it's on their end, sometimes it's on our end, but it doesn't happen all that often. And we should mention, too, that, uh, that our, our good pal Jeffrey Callison pulls you on to Insight every so often to talk about what you're up to and get some, get some updates on music. Yeah, I'm lucky enough once a month to actually be on the air with the content that uh, <laughs> we produce for Off Air. And it's part of their sound advice series where different people from the station come on and talk about what's new, what's current, or what's interesting, some combination thereof. Well, let me segue from that into something I've noticed that... Uh, that I noticed you do that a lot of announcers don't necessarily do. You're you're putting a little uh how to put this. You you made a point in many of your announcements to have just a little little twist of humor in it that uh that that I've noticed. I don't know whether people are noticing it, but uh, uh some people, yeah. Some people uh think that's great. Other people have different opinions. Uh <laughs> you get do you get some flack for that? Well, uh, mostly uh exterior. Once once in a great while we get a, an email that says you're not funny. Stop it. But uh, <laughs> most of the time, I've get you know a lot of encouragement from the staff at the at the station. I I like doing that because I think public radio has a really lousy stereotype, a really bad rap of having this gray to beige personality, and it doesn't. I mean, if you just listen, and uh, a lot of people just take it on the basis of that one Saturday Night Live skit with the two <laughs> ladies, the food ladies. And uh, never seen that skit, by the way. It gets a lot of ribbing in, you know, popular culture as being this dull, monotone, in your ear, boring, yet informative. So you got to listen to it. it. Like Radio Vitamins. Yeah, it could use a little perking up now and again. I don't think that hurts anybody, you know? Right. And I know that you do have some uh, interest in, in comedy, and uh, you, you've been doing some stand-up, I guess. Well, a little bit, but that's, I mean, really, just that's just kind of a side thing to, it, actually, to help my announcing uh, on air and to think on my feet a little bit more. I like alternative stand-up, whatever you want to define alternative stand-up to be, on my show, because I, I think it harkens back to, like, when Lenny Bruce would open up for Dave Brubeck or when Bill Hicks would open up for this band called Tool, or when Patton Oswalt would open up for Yola Tango. Alternative comedians who really have a strong viewpoint and an interesting opinion and an interesting take on, on comedy, I like that I can sort of, I try to anyway, uh, 
kind of use that to to break up the music every once in a while. I, I think that's a great idea. Who, which which comics have you had on or going to have on? Any well, names we know of. Well, let's see. The uh, I never had anybody in the studio personally, but I do have a big collection of, of their records. Uh, just names that sprang to mind are uh, Maria Bamford and Eugene Merman, Pat Oswalt, and um, Doug Benson, and yeah, names of uh, people like that. We're big fans of comedy on this program. Don't do a lot of music, but uh, you know, let's uh, let's have you come on and do some comedy at some point if you. Well, uh, the let's put it this way: the invitation's there if you want to come and do some radio stuff. Oh, thank you. You know, we we do have Will Durst on every every week usually, but I don't I don't think Will will mind if we branch out. He's not going to come by and like break my knees or anything. Yeah, pretty sure no. Pretty okay. sure no. You don't do political anyway. No, no, not much. Hey. No, not at all. You let me just take a little stab at something here though. You know, guys like me, guys that are let's say let's say over thirty nine, music kind of seemed to have stopped a while back. We're just I just we're not interested. We don't keep up on it. It's, it's hard for people like myself. And I'm looking right now. I saved this from last summer. Uh, Rolling Stone had a list of, like, sounds of the summer. Can you remember what was topping the chart on July 4th? They went back to 1987. I look at this list, and, of course, I'm totally with this up to about 1992 when <laughs> Sir Mix-a-Lot was topping the charts when right. Babies Got Back. But uh, after that, I just fall off. I don't know who these who Puff Daddy, uh, Bone Thugs in Harmony, mm-hmm. uh, Usher, mm-hmm. uh, Nelly Furtado, uh, Rihanna and Jay Z. I don't know who these people are. Oh, those are those are really contemporary. Uh, your, your MTV hits are kind of what you're what you're listing off there. Stuff I, that, of course, probably wouldn't be heard on KDVS. No, but I guess the question is: Is there any hope for me? Because I just don't care about these people, and it's just I, I don't know what happened. To, what happened to people further? Let me look back on the list further. Well, Michael Jackson's dead, so when again, that's pretty much clear what happened to him. Yeah, but yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, Phil Collins, Prince. Ooh. You know, Paul McCartney, I mean, I guess they're still out there. Yeah, McCartney just released a live disc. Well, there you go. Of course, it was from his Madison Square Garden show from, like, the 80s. Maybe (laughs) that's why. Uh, Yeah, the prince is still around. He's knocking on doors for for Jesus. Is he, like, Jehovah's Witnesses? Like, he's... He, he is a Jehovah's says. Witness. He isn't really knocking on doors, is I, he? I haven't seen. I haven't seen him in person. I, I just. I, I would think he would, if he's really into it, would do something like that. They do come down my street every so often. I'll have to keep an eye peel for whether you know Prince is knocking on the door. Nice people with an awake in the watchtower. <laughs> well, Nick Bruner, keep up the good work over at uh, at KXJZ and other affiliated stations, and uh, come back sometime. Oh, thanks for having me on, Doug. It was a pleasure. All right. Before we go, one more plug for how people can find uh, your show. Sure. Uh, you can find Off Air at smartrockradio.org. And there's a new show posting every single Thursday. All right. I'm sure many of listeners are going to do exactly that. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Let's take a short break and come back and have some more fun. 